We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place exclusive interviews with players coaches and team executives streaming live and always available on demand stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the odyssey app rocking out here on a friday afternoon rick dayton joined by a special guest brian cuban joining us in the studio from four until five today brian it is good to have you you came all the way from dallas and it's going to five below tonight you realize that right yes i do and yeah. i am i am flying back tomorrow uh-huh. I, but i even went for a run yesterday and it, it's funny because you i've been in dallas for quite a while now sure. but i went through a lot of obviously brutal winters in pittsburgh yeah but you you can get used to warm weather really fast. <laughs> yes, you can. So uh, yes, this can. was kind of a shock to my system. Yeah, tonight will be very, very cold. But I want to talk to you about – there's so many things to start with. I mean, Brian Cuban has written a book that's called The Ambulance Chaser. We had him on back in December when the book launched, and it was a huge success, I think, for a lot of people here in Pittsburgh to read about a story that is about places they know. I mean, a lot of people here have have – have been able to be drawn to that. But what about people who aren't from Pittsburgh? What's the response from them about Ambulance Chaser and this legal thriller that you'd penned? The response has been great. Uh, of course, you only hear from the ones who like it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, people have written me saying, now I want to go to Pittsburgh. I didn't know about the incline. Mm. I didn't know about the Gateway Clipper. And I made sure that they were integral parts of the story and not just to throw them in so you can say, you're, you're throwing them in as afterthoughts and right. pile up the sites, right? Sure. Because that's not authentic. Right. They are integral parts of the plot. And they're integral parts of Pittsburgh, too. That's right. I mean, it definitely is part of who we are. When you go about writing a book like that, you went to law school, you're an attorney. Mm-hmm. When you go about writing that, how much of that is from personal experience that you hear, hey, wait till you hear about this case that I just took? I mean, you're sitting down after work and you bump into somebody, a lounge somewhere. How much of it is that and how much of it is fiction off the top of your head? Hey, this could happen. Well, I think most fiction is drawn from things we know, mm-hmm. right? Most novels are drawn from things we know. We write what we know. So that I stuck to the formula, and Jason Feldman is, uh, you know, he struggles with drugs and alcohol. Not not an unusual trope for lawyers, mm-hmm. right? There's mm-hmm. a reason for it. Right. And uh, he uh, is uh, dealing with a father who is struggling with dementia, as my father did. Mm-hmm. So I really gathered from what I knew. But uh, there's also a lot of fictionalized stuff in it as well. But uh, I think writing what I knew and drawing from people that I've met along the way in my life and drawing from my own pain and my own redemption really lended an authenticity to the book that, Mm -hmm. you know, I may think that, but people have told me that as well. No, it's real. It it is definitely real. And the the identifiability, I don't even know if that's a word, um, of the characters, it it definitely just feels genuine. I mean, it just doesn't feel like this was something that was made up. It almost makes you feel like, 
Um, and I think maybe I mentioned this to you before. You know, you almost think about some of the other characters in, say, a Tom Clancy, that they've got a certain person. You know, is Jack Ryan going to come yeah. back in this next one, whatever? And you get to know them over a series of five, six, eight, ten books. Um, Grisham does it a little bit differently. What was your writing process? I mean, as you, would you sit down and write first thing in the morning? Did you write late at night? Did you take a break from lunch and do this and say, I'm going to disconnect it and write? What, what was your process? Uh, one of the reasons it took me so long to write The Ambulance Chaser is I didn't try to force it. Okay, When I didn't feel creative, I didn't write. Mm. I really wasn't on a deadline, and that doesn't get to a problem until you're on a deadline with a publisher. But I, uh, I just I wanted it to be authentic, and I wanted it to be when I was really creative. My worst writing in my personal experience comes when I'm trying to force characters, mm. uh, force situations, force plot techniques, right. and force plot devices. I just wanted it to flow, and sometimes it flowed while I was out for a run, Sometimes it flowed while I was, uh, you know, sitting at the TV. I see something. I really engage my senses. A smell re might remind me of something to put in the book. Sure. A sound. Uh, and especially in the Squirrel Hill area, a lot of the book takes place mm. in Squirrel Hill. And there are so many just unique sights, smells, sounds in Squirrel Hill, yeah. especially along Murray Avenue, right? Mm. As my grandmother growing up, when she lived off Phillips and Murray, taking me up to Murray Hill News. Yeah. And, uh, you know, places the, like that don't exist anymore. Find I mean, it, the it, comic right, books and right. all the smells of the deli mm -hmm. and the bakery. And I think I really capture that to some degree. In genre fiction, you have to move on, right? You can't. Yes really get into all the details. Yeah, but you lived it, and you were definitely part of it. Our guest in the studio is Brian Cuban. His book is The Ambulance Chaser. He grew up in Mount Lebanon, went to school here as an attorney, now lives in Dallas. We're going to talk to him a little bit more, not only about the book, but the process, and how much of it is also based on his life and his struggles. And he's very public about that, and has written another book about battles with addiction and coming back to sobriety. Rick Dane Show on KDKA, visiting with author and attorney... Brian Cuban, he grew up in Mount Lebanon and uh, spent a lot of time here in Pittsburgh. When did you move away? When did you head I south? I moved away in 1986. I graduated Pitt Law, took the bar, passed miraculously because I was an alcoholic <laughs> big time. And uh, with, you know, 100, 200 bucks to my name and a duffel bag of clothes, took a Greyhound bus to Dallas. My older brother, Mark, met me at the bus station and I moved in with him. How'd that go? It was like throwing gasoline on a fire because I was already had a drinking problem and yeah. I also had an eating disorder. I'm in recovery from bulimia. Yes, guys do get eating disorders. Yeah. And uh, so they didn't know any of my problems. Mark didn't know? No, no, no. I mean, you have to remember, Mark had gone to IU, and we'd been apart in colleges and stuff. So I wasn't going to tell him. And we were going out drinking, and my drinking escalated. And then the summer of 1987, uh, I discovered the one thing that for the first time in my young life allowed me to look at myself in the mirror and love myself for the first time. Because I really had gone through, I had been bullied in high school mm. and a lot of different things, and I really did not like myself. I just did my, I discovered cocaine. And cocaine and alcohol took over my life for the next, you know, decades. I failed yeah. the Texas bar exam three times, uh, two trips to a psychiatric hospital. The first time was after a near suicide attempt in 2005. I've been to jail, three failed marriages, one more, I get a free set of steak knives. Mm. And, uh, and then finally, recovery began in 2007, Easter weekend, 2007. So in all of that, we're trying to be a practicing lawyer. Right. And that doesn't work out very well. Right. Um, tough love from your brothers, Mark and Jeff, because uh, it wasn't just Mark. Jeff was No, it was there. Jeff. Yeah. I mean, frustration. Uh, no, I won't say so much tough love as uh, trying to figure it out as they went along. 
But the problem was is that I did what a lot of people struggling with addiction do. Uh, when it was in their face, after my, uh, they came into my house in the summer of 2005 at the urging of a friend, and I had a 45 automatic on my nightstand, hmm. and there was drug, and I was also abusing Xanax. I was Xanaxing my way through the ni- uh, day and cocaining through the night. Tough to practice law like that. Right. And uh, so when it was in their face and I had a problem, I started distancing myself. You pushed back. I pushed back, and right. I... I started just only hanging out with the people who, I, in my mind, truly love me right. until the cocaine ran out. When, <laughs> the, in your book, I parted with. in your book, which is talking about an attorney who faces similar yes. sorts, Jason of does face similar approach. Jason struggles. talks about he gets clarity from the cocaine. He yes. talks about how he thinks better when he gets the blow. I mean, was that based on your experience, or is that based on what you heard from other? That people is who based addicted? on what I've heard from other lawyers. My experience was a little bit different than Jason's. I was doing cocaine to love myself Hmm. because it gave me that feeling of confidence and uh, self-love that I felt I, uh, that I'd never had, that I, that I'd never had. I literally just hated myself when I looked in the mirror and didn't think I was worthy of living. And that's what happened in 2005 Hmm. uh, when I decided I was doing my family a favor by ending my life by suicide. But Jason's struggle is more in the line of uh, the cocaine gives him drive and focus and he comes to rely on that drive and focus. And it also, the cocaine for the protagonist, Jason Feldman, also helps him deal with his father, the pain of his father's struggle and decline with dementia. Right. But of course, the problem's still there when the high goes away. Right. It doesn't disappear. That's it right. doesn't temporarily and, uh, is gone, but it's back. Yeah. Maybe worse because you ignored other things. Yeah. And then Jason finds himself accused of the murder of a high school classmate. Right. You know, 30 years prior after her remains are discovered in a vacant lot in the Hill District. Something that he did that his past ultimately That's catches right. up and with him. Yeah. Another reason he's using, right? Yeah. Because he, in his mind, he did something in the past, something horrific. That has caused this to happen. And he can't walk away from that. Our guest in the studio is Brian Cuban, and we've got a lot more to talk about. We're going to talk about sobriety, and we're going to talk about how that's not always as much puppies and sunshine as you think that it might be. We're going to talk about the eating disorder as well, and a little bit more with him about growing up a Cuban in Pittsburgh. Maybe we should have a new one of those with a big voice saying something about Brian Cuban, real Mount Lebanon. He's our guest <laughs> in the studio here. Brian, it is, uh, it's delightful to have you here. Well, I'll go back to Bill's question. He was talking about screenplays and, and sure. writing and your process. I want to give you a chance to, to address sure. that. Sure. Well, as you, the key word here is screenplay, which is 100, 150 pages, much more uh, the action's compressed. Mm-hmm. But it's always still about characters, characters and fun situations driving the action forward to a conclusion. So just that uh, you don't you don't have to have experienced it to write it. Right. But you should rely on, you know, what you know intrinsically and the research you've done and just write fun stuff. Yeah. But again, it is a screenplay which is different from what I do. Your life hasn't always been that fun stuff. I mean, no. and you touched on bulimia, you touched yes. on the suicide attempt, you touched on the drug use, you touched on the Xanax. I mean, the, there are a lot of different layers to that. When did you realize that you needed help? That would have been Easter weekend 2007. Uh, I'd been seeing a woman who, uh, her name's Amanda, and we had started dating, and she didn't know anything about my issues, none. And she does, right. she's a very light drinker, if at all. Right. Uh, obviously, didn't do drugs, didn't do drugs. And we moved in together. And you know what's funny? I remember one of my friends saying to me when I said I was moving in with her, he said, you do what you do. One of my drug friends, mm. she doesn't do what you do. How's that going to work? Yeah. And yeah. I said to him, I'm going to stop now. 
So I'm starting to think about it mm. when she moved in with me, and I believe this was like January 2006. So uh, it was I didn't stop, and I was able to hide it from her. Easter weekend 2007, she went away to visit her family out of town. Right. I went out. Next thing I know it was two days later. I'd had a drug and alcohol-induced blackout. She's looking down at me in bed. There's uh, Xanax. There's cocaine lines. And she's a lawyer like me. She's probably trying to figure out if she walked in the right house. Yeah. I'm looking around trying to get my bearings. What day is it? And now thinking of what lie can I tell to explain this yeah. law and order episode orgy of evidence that right. I might not be the person I represented myself you to weren't. be. I mean, and you weren't. And I was lying, weren't. right? That's yeah. what you do. You lie yeah. when you're with, the, with addiction. And so all I could think of was I told her to take me back to the psychiatric facility I'd been to the first time, mm -hmm. which she didn't know about. She said, right. you've been to a psychiatric facility? Right. Now we'll talk about that later. So we're, we go down there, and we're standing in the parking lot, and several things came to me. One, that she was going to leave. I'd leave. She yeah. didn't leave, Rick. She uh, stood by me. We dated for over a decade while I rebuilt the broken trust and found recovery. And we have now been married over five years and been together over 16 so not all relationships will survive that, but ours yeah. was able to because I had to recover for me, not for her, because people do leave. Right. Parents pass away. Pets die. And the recovery has to be bigger than all of that, right? Because right. trauma is a strong relapse uh, trigger. Would you look at that as an intervention, or did you say, okay, this, for me, it, it's time? I mean, it's how time. Would... I, I, said, I, I, I decided it was time. Because I thought about something else my father had said to us. My father, who was a veteran of the Pacific at Okinawa, yeah. a CB, fought in Korea. Yeah. He and his older brother, Marty, had a trim shop on West Liberty Avenue. Now it's the greater multi-list office. Okay. Uh, but that used to be Regency Products. And they put on you know, Auto Row, right? Yeah. They, put, yeah. they customized uh, cars. They put on convertible tops. They reupholstered seats for over 40 years. Right before uh, my dad finally retired and they sold the building. And he, my father was the middle of three boys like me. And he said to us, guys, no matter where you go in life, no matter what happens, pick up that phone and call your brother. Hmm. Tell your brother you love him. Make sure your brother's okay. This was the relationship my father had with his two brothers. He was passing down this gift. And standing in that parking lot, I thought about that, and I wasn't ready to lose my family. I wasn't ready to just throw away that gift that he had given us. And I decided that it was time. Why then and not 2005 when I had a 45 automatic on my nightstand? Couldn't tell you. If we could figure that out, we'd win the Nobel Prize for addiction, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and that now, was the turning point. Now in Dallas, you live how far between Jeff and Mark? I That's mean, a, yes, how close you, are you? I mean, seriously. Walking distance. Walking distance. Literally, literally walking distance. And until my father passed away three and a half years ago, he lived across the street from me. That is how that gift stuck. And that's a privilege. That really is a privilege because I talk to a lot of families. I talk to a lot of people. They reach out to me. They're struggling. Broken families, estranged families, uh, families of member in prison. And so I, I feel fortunate to have that privilege of a close family because not that's everyone amazing. has it. That's amazing. Brian Cuban joining us. Uh, we originally started off talking about his book, and that's how I first met him, The Ambulance Chaser, which came out in December. It was on Rick's reading list, and we just sort of formed a, a bond back and forth. And he said he was going to be in Pittsburgh, and I said, hey, why don't you come in and, and do an hour of the show? And so here we are 45 minutes into that particular hour. Um, Jeff and Mark, how much have they helped you stay on the straight and narrow? They always help me stay on the straight and narrow with their love and their support. 
uh, the, I I get it from them every day in one way or another. Are they we, checking in every day? Uh, in email or text. I won't say every day, but uh, I mean we've probably texted uh, back and forth five or six times today. Right. Uh, so whether it's family or one of us needs advice, even I mean, you know, you hear from Mark and I hear from my brother. We're all very close. Now Mark travels. Jeff has his thing. They have their family and children. Right. But we get together as much as we can. That's tremendous. It's just tremendous. Brian Cuban joining us here in the studio. We want to talk to him about what happened back in 1999 when his famous brother came really, really close to buying a Pittsburgh franchise. Yeah, we'll talk about That's that a great as we story. continue. Great yeah, story. good stuff. It's 4:51 on KDKA. Rick Dayton joined in studio by Brian Cuban. Boy, have loved this, and I. I can't believe that 50 minutes have already gone by, but Brian is in from Dallas and uh, the author of The Ambulance Chaser. He's an attorney. His brother, maybe you've heard of his brother. His brother's name is Mark, and he's got another brother named Jeff, and uh, they've done a few things out there too. But, hey, tell me about this story. 1999, how close was your brother to buying the Penguins? Well, from my standpoint, being part of it, it was close, right? Yeah. Now, Mark may give you another story. You were so in the room. I, mean, you I were, was in the room, yeah. Right. So uh, it was uh, – 98 or 99, back when Ed Marino, as Marino with yeah. the MC, declared bankruptcy. Yeah. Put the Penguins into bankruptcy. And at that time, I would get deals all the time. Kids, Mark, interested in this and that. And I would just forward them, right? Yeah. And you get, no, 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 no. So a buddy of mine that I went to law school with, Mark Hake, he was with Pietro Gallagordon at the time. Mm-hmm. He uh, emails me, hey, do you, you know, does your brother have any interest? And I forwarded it to Mark, just expecting another no. And he got a response, do you know somebody? What, what's going on? Mm-hmm. So before I know it, the ball's rolling. I come into town. I'm staying at the William Penn. Yeah. We're meeting with Mario Lemieux, and it was uh, Chuck Greenberg yeah. and uh, ta- the late Tom Rich. Yeah. And uh, talking about uh, Mark uh, buying in, not buying the team outright. Right. Because Mario's trying to buy, buy the team as well. Sure. He has a salary invested in that. Yeah. And all the other stuff. And so uh, all of a sudden, we're at, uh, we drive out where Mark meets with Mario. Okay, he, I, I have to wait in this Brugger's Bagels, and this was before the internet. <laughs> this was before the internet, so I had to twiddle my thumb in a Brugger's Bagels. That's nice. So, uh, but Mark comes out, and we're driving back to the hotel, and it's all. And I think the Pens were playing the New Jersey Devils in a playoff game that night. Okay. So we go back to the hotel, we go to the game, and I'm thinking, yeah, this is going. There was Mark was positive. I go back to I go back to Dallas, and a couple days later, I you know found out Mark had decided not to do it. Did he own the Mavs at that point? No, no. This okay. was 99. This is, I think, now the summer of 99. Okay. So for whatever Mark's reasons were, he decided not to do it. Right. But it worked out great for everyone. Mario got the pens. How many Stanley Cups did they win? Yeah, they've done okay since then. Mark, yeah. only a few months later, it was in January of 2000, Mark bought the Mavs. So that's when that happened. Yeah, so it was Janu- right after. Okay. Mark bought the Dallas Mavericks. That's how close in time it was. And the right. Mavs won their championship, been twice. Right. Been, been twice. So it worked out great for everyone. I've had a lot of people ask me if the book has done well enough for you to buy the Pirates. I, mean, I would can, love to buy the Pirates. Have you got that much money I to I would jump love in? to buy the Pirates. I mean... Oh, don't get me started on the nuttings. <laughs> don't get me started. Well, but the other thing is that you're a Pittsburgher and you love your teams just as much, even though you live somewhere That's else. That's right. My father took me to my first game in 1969 against the New York Mets at Forbes Field. Hmm. And uh, in the ambulance chaser, you have the gateway clipper. Right. I forget what boat it was then. The princess something, the crown princess. But my we used to, my father used to take me over to Three River Stadium yeah. on the clipper. Right. And uh, so the baseball, if you ask me, 
what I I bleed black and gold for everything, but the Pirates are my yeah, that's awesome. love. That's awesome. Brian Cuban joining us here in from Dallas. He's from Mount Lebanon, of course, and went to school here and uh, law school here as well. He's been talking to us about a lot of real-life issues on this Friday afternoon, and we are delighted to have him. It's 4.51 on KDKA. Rick Dayton joined in studio by Brian Cuban. Boy, I have loved this, and I – I can't believe that 50 minutes have already gone by, but Brian is in from Dallas and uh, the author of The Ambulance Chaser. He's an attorney. His brother, maybe you've heard of his brother. His brother's name is Mark, and he's got another brother named Jeff, and uh, they've done a few things out there too. But, hey, tell me about this story. 1999, how close was your brother to buying the Penguins? Well, from my standpoint, being part of it, it was close, right? Yeah. Now, Mark may give you another story. You were so in I, the room. I, mean, you I were, was in the room, yeah. Right. So uh, it was... Uh, 98 or 99, back when Ed Marino, as Marino with yeah. the MC, declared bankruptcy. Yeah. Put the Penguins into bankruptcy. And at that time, I would get deals all the time. Kids, Mark, interested in this and that. And I would just forward them, right? Yeah. And you get, no, 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 no. So a buddy of mine that I went to law school with, Mark Hake, he was with Pietro Gallagordon at the time. Mm-hmm. He uh, emails me, hey, do you, you know, does your brother have any interest? And I forwarded it to Mark, just expecting another no. And he got a response, do you know somebody? What, what's going on? Mm-hmm. So before I know it, the ball's rolling. I come into town. I'm staying at the William Penn. Yeah. We're meeting with Mario Lemieux, and it was uh, Chuck Greenberg yeah. and uh, ta- the late Tom Rich. Yeah. And uh, talking about uh, Mark uh, buying in, not buying the team outright. Right. Because Mario's trying to buy, buy the team as well. Sure. He has his salary invested in that yeah. and all the other stuff. And so uh, all of a sudden, we're at, uh, we drive out where Mark meets with Mario. Okay, he, I, I have to wait in this Brugger's Bagels, and this is before the internet. <laughs> this is before the internet, so I had to twiddle my thumb in a Brugger's Bagels. That's nice. So, uh, but Mark comes out, and we're driving back to the hotel, and it's all. And I think the Pens were playing the New Jersey Devils in a playoff game that night. Okay. So we go back to the hotel, we go to the game, and I'm thinking, yeah, this is going. There was Mark was positive. I go back to I go back to Dallas, and a couple days later, I you know found out Mark had decided not to do it. Did he own the Mavs at that point? No, no. This okay. was 99. This is, I think, now the summer of 99. Okay. So for whatever Mark's reasons were, he decided not to do it. Right. But it worked out great for everyone. Mario got the pens. How many Stanley Cups did they win? Yeah, they've done okay since then. Mark, yeah. only a few months later, it was in January of 2000, Mark bought the Mavs. So that's when that happened. Yeah, so it was January, right after. Okay. Mark bought the Dallas Mavericks. That's how close in time it was. And the right. Mavs won their championship, been twice. Right. Been, been twice. So it worked out great for everyone. I've had a lot of people ask me if the book has done well enough for you to buy the Pirates. I, mean, I would can, love to buy the Pirates. Have you got that much money I to would love in? to buy the Pirates. I mean... Oh, don't get me started on the nuttings. Don't get me started. <laughs> well, but the other thing is that you're a Pittsburgher and you love your teams just as much, even though you live somewhere That's else. That's right. My father took me to my first game in 1969 against the New York Mets at Forbes Field. Mm. And uh, in the ambulance chaser, you have the Gateway Clipper. Right. I forget what boat it was then. The princess something, the crown princess. But my we used to, my father used to take me over to Three River Stadium yeah. on the Clipper. Right. And uh, so the baseball, if you ask me, what I, I bleed black and gold for everything, but the Pirates are my love. Yeah, that's awesome. Love. That's awesome. Brian Cuban joining us here in from Dallas. He's from Mount Lebanon, of course, and went to school here and uh, law school here as well. He's been talking to us about a lot of real-life issues on this Friday afternoon, and we are delighted to have him. It's 4.58. Brian Cuban has been with us here in the studio from this 4 o'clock to 5 o'clock hour, and you're here in town to see your mom. I'm here in town to see my mom. Uh you know, she's uh, she's still here in the house we grew up in. Love you, Mom. Love you, Shirley. And uh, I'll be seeing you again tomorrow. Yep. 
And you and your brothers get back on a pretty regular basis to see her now, don't you? We try. Yeah. 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 Well, we are so delighted that you carved out some time to come in and see us. We can't wait to find out what's next for you. And uh, just know that you've always got an open mic. You want to drop in. You always got a spot. Thank you so much, Rick. And, uh, We'll see what the uh, what what this what's in store for Jason Feldman in the sequel. But be sure you read the original. The original is called The Ambulance Chaser. It's out right now. But he's also got another book that's written about some more serious things and some of the stuff that we've talked about. If you've missed any of the interview today and you want to go back and hear what Brian and I talked about, you can use the Odyssey app. You can use KDKRadio.com and rewind it. He was here from 4 until 5 today on KDK. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Rick. You sure appreciate it. Odyssey celebrates Mother's Day. Brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.